Are you a nerd? Are you a person? Then check out Voluntary Input, where we not only have open discussions about tech, TV, movies, and gaming, but also open discussions about people, and sometimes with the people behind the tech. Catch new episodes with me, Leo Allen, bi-weekly on Tuesdays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Good Pods, and pretty much everywhere else you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out videos of every episode on YouTube and Twitch. Simply go to voluntaryinput.com to find all the ways you can listen to us, contact us, and better yet, select register as a guest to be a guest on the show because we are always looking for great guests like you. Never forced, never coursed. Welcome to Voluntary Input. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Shut up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Card? My do with the You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult-Worthy Classic, episode number 25. And what a better way to start the next 25 episodes of this series than with my good friend Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. She has been a guest several times on the show where we talked about The Sadist and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. But now we're going to switch it up a little bit, getting out of these psychological thrillers and into a genre that I've barely touched on the show, Spaghetti Westerns. We are going to kick it off with 1966's Django an influential film that has been copied and parodied and paid homage to multiple times by many directors, including one of my favorites, Quentin Tarantino. So without further ado, let's jump into this fun episode with Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the show returning uh, as a third time guest on the Cultworthy Classic, one of my most popular guests from my most popular episodes and one of my favorite people to talk to about Cultworthy Classics, Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. How you doing? I am good. Thank you for having me back. And I, you know, I enjoy talking to you about movies as well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to, to break down this uh, spaghetti western. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that we have decided to take like a different direction in our conversations because the last two films that we talked about were about psychopaths. They were psychological thrillers, people with inadequacies and things like that. And now we get to talk about one of the origin stories, one of the very first films that got us into the spaghetti Western crazes of the 1960s. And that is Django from 1966. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. Django! 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 Django!
Now, before we jump into that, let's just talk about spaghetti westerns in general. Like, I grew up with a dad who was very much into Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson and westerns, specifically this genre of western, the spaghetti western, which when I was a kid, I didn't really understand what it was. I didn't know what that term meant. I just knew that it was like kind of a longer movie with a lot of drawn out shots with some action sequences in between, but most recognizably those really intense scores of harmonicas and whistles. Mm. It didn't feel like a John Wayne movie. It didn't feel like a Jimmy Stewart movie from the fifties or sixties. It was something different. What was your kind of first exposure and recognition of this genre? Well, my dad was also into some Westerns. I think he still watches some now, but he was also into Clint Eastwood. He did more probably John Wayne uh, maybe like I think now he watches sometimes he'll watch the old shows of like the gunslinger mm-hmm. or uh, things like that. Um, so I know a little from that. I'm I'm not hugely into a lot of Westerns. I always like the idea of like the Western town and I like to see how they set up the towns and everything like that. It doesn't I don't know. It doesn't always like keep my uh, attention, though. I did really like the show Deadwood. Oh, uh, yeah. That me too. That was, <laughs> yeah. That, that was really good. But um I watched this movie only like maybe like five, six years ago. And it was only because it was, it was like brought to my attention and they're like, Oh, you should watch this and stuff. So I watched it. And the thing with me in like Italian spaghetti Western type movies is uh, I don't like movies with a lot of like repetitive musical phrases. Mm -hmm. It seems like it doesn't quite like heat it. Like, so, so like um, whatever the one is, I never can remember what the, uh, uh, the oh the good the bad and the ugly yeah, that one drives me up the wall because i like that part but it's like they play it like 40 times yes uh, it also it's it's not just westerns though because like even like beverly hills cop i can't do the every 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 like act transition or scene transition it's got that intro and outro and i can i can definitely understand what you're talking about it does get a little bit repetitive and a little bit annoying to a point yeah and it's so it's just like you know that that's the kind of thing that pulled me out of it but i do really like when it's more just music the music is really good especially in in django mm-hmm. and i just like the some of them i just like the grittiness and the story of it and yeah so i haven't watched a whole lot of westerns but the ones the reason I brought this one up is, I mean, you you asked me what I wanted to watch. Yeah. And I thought about a couple other movies. This one was easy for people to watch. It's on Tubi. And I was like, just looking through like different titles of things I've seen and things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember really liking Django. So let's do that one because I know, you know, that's a little bit of a different twist. And, you know, like you said, we usually talk about psychopaths. So, uh, so yeah, that's yeah. basically my history with it. And highly influential, too. And we'll get into that later. You know, there there are filmmakers today, and we'll get into, like, the main one, I'm sure, towards the middle or the last part of this conversation that take a lot of influences from, I'd say, this film and some of the more prominent Sergio Leone films. But with me and the Spaghetti Western, why I enjoy this particular genre of Western more than others, because I'm exactly on the same level as you, it is not my favorite genre. 
I, I think there's something kind of a little bit um, heavy handed in how they handle the heroic actions of Westerns that were made here in America. Like it's John Wayne's always John Wayne and John Wayne's always going to win. You know, Jimmy Stewart's always going to be the reluctant hero. There is just a certain kind of vibe and formula to American Westerns, especially of the 40s, 50s and 60s, before they started getting a little bit dangerous. You know, once New Hollywood came around and we started seeing films like Heaven's Gate or The Hired Hand with Peter Fonda, where they were able to be a little bit more um, auteurish. This was the genre that I really appreciated. And going back to the auteur perspective, I think that's why. I think that's why Spaghetti Westerns talked to me. Because they did not shoot live sound like most films do or Westerns do. Most of these films were shot silent and then dubbed later because they were using international actors, international crews, mostly Italian-Spanish-based, it gave them more cinematic freedom to capture some amazing wide-angle shots, long-lens shots that really covered the landscapes, really covered the characters, were able to do these extreme close-ups. So there was an auteur nature, especially with Sergio Leone and the director of this film, Sergio Carbucci. Do you kind of get what I'm talking about when I say that? Yeah. Yeah. There's some really, they do get some really great shots by having to not worry about if you can hear the sound, if there's going to be too much wind, if there's going to be right. any of that, cause they just don't even worry about it. So yeah, they, they get some really great vast desert. They can maybe focus a little bit more on the scenery. Um, they get more facial expressions. I feel like they'll do yes. more like close-ups of the facial expressions of people. Um, and yeah, so the the only thing I, I don't mind, like the adding everything later, it's just part of me did kind of wish I could hear Franco Nero's real voice. Yes. Uh, you know, the fact <laughs> that he was dubbed over, it was kind of like, okay, but yeah, so, but yeah, it does give you some really great shots. And that's kind of like the the penance, I could say, for the visual majesty of these films is you are going to be dealing with a dubbing issue. Sometimes the voice just doesn't match the actor or it doesn't match the scene or the energy. So you kind of have to like be a little bit forgiving for that part. And, and that's the thing too, is I, I didn't realize for the longest time until I did more history research about the genre was like, well, I really want to hear just the original cut. I want to hear the original language. Well, guess what? The original language was dubbed too. So it doesn't really matter. You're still going to oh, wow. have the same experience as you would with having it dubbed in English. Now, granted, Franco Nero probably did the Italian dub, but it still looks like a dub. So I think yeah. if you're just a fan of this genre, it's something that you go into expecting, and it's easily forgivable, especially when the film is as visually stunning and emotionally gripping as as this one. Yeah, the plot is really interesting. It definitely keeps you going, and it's only like 90 minutes, so... and. The body count is huge. So <laughs> it's if you're really, really for huge. like a really big bang bang shoot 'em up movie, like that's what this is. So there's something interesting about it too, because the the head character, the main character, Django, played by Franco Nero, who people would know from multiple spaghetti westerns. If you are a real genre fan, you would know him from the ninja movies from the eighties that Canon Features put out. But then also he has popped up in Quentin Tarantino's Django. And most recently he was uh, like the general manager of the hotel in John Wick 2. 
So he does show up still, and he's got these amazing eyes. He's got this amazing presence. And in those films, you get to hear his voice, which is a very you know, dominant and amazing voice. You don't yeah. get to hear it in this film. But there is something the way that they shoot these heroes where you've got Clint Eastwood in the Leone movies where he's got like these piercing blue eyes. He has like this real American macho feel to him, which kind of makes him separated from all the rest of the characters in the movie because those Italian and Spanish actors that they have in those films are so rich in, I want to say, caricature. They almost feel like they've been drawn like they, they really did a great job of like putting people with very fascinating faces and expressions in these films. And with Nero, you kind of have the same thing. Strong jawline, piercing blue eyes. You, you want to like him, but at the same time, you're afraid to like him. And I think that's what makes him an interesting hero. Well, and he never smiles or anything either. Like he, the me watching i watched this again for the podcast and i hadn't watched it like i said like five or six years so i actually had some different takes i did the first time that i kind of forgot uh-huh. how i felt the first time but i tell you this one i forgot he is a handsome fella i'll tell you that <laughs> Hans, handsome man i was like look at that chiseled face and then i was like hey eyes i see that you know? right i was like okay he got he has a good face for it and it definitely you can see the similarities between him and like a clint eastwood mm-hmm and what they were trying to go for with this. And like just the history of the Spaghetti Western is so fascinating because when it really kind of started hitting big, like in the grindhouse market, and they really kind of speak to this in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where they recognized that these were going to be a popular and inexpensive way to get these Italian productions overseas and internationally watched. (laughs) So they would bring like American actors or even famous actors from other countries to come and star in these and really kind of tap that market. What happened was, and it happened again in the 70s and 80s with like crime films and zombie films and horror films, just the way that the Italian film distribution markets work, it was just an open season for imitation. They didn't really have any copyright laws, so people could make as many films called Django as they wanted to. It was just and a loose they did. and they did. We'll get into that later. <laughs> so there's many just, of them. There's just there were looser standards which made for more opportunities to have, I would say, copyright infringement, even though nobody got in trouble. So that's where it was kind of interesting where you have this film by Carbucci, because Carbucci is kind of known as like the second tier Leone. Leone was able to get his trilogy out there with Clint Eastwood which was Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And then he really kicked it off with my favorite, which was Once Upon a Time in the West with Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda. Carbucci had, in my opinion, the second best set of three films, starting with this one, Django, then doing Navajo Joe with Burt Reynolds, and then The Great Silence with Klaus Kinski. Those are my three second favorite Italian movie trios from the same director. Now, the difference is, is he didn't have the budget to go after the American actors like Leone did. So he would just use native actors, whether they were from Spain or Italy. So he worked with Franco Nero a lot. So let's get into the story, because Django and Fistful of Dollars are very similar in their storytelling. And there's a reason why. Do you know what that reason is? No, what is it? So they are both pretty much remakes of Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I have heard. Sorry, I was just going to say, I haven't seen Yojimbo, so I didn't know if like it was... Yeah. So you have a character who is playing both sides, but really playing for himself. And in the middle, you've got a village of people in danger whose lives really depend on the decisions that this lone character makes. Now, there are a little bit of different plot lines kind of peppered through both different films, but they really are the same story structure coming from Yojimbo, which to me is even funnier because that story structure comes from America, from Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, that really just kind of has this exact same story structure so that that circular pattern of intellectual thought and property is fascinating to me because here we are watching films as Americans where these were really popular, these spaghetti westerns, that were adapted from a masterful Japanese filmmaker who adapted classic American literature. It's just a fascinating cycle to me how that all kind of worked out. And do you know, I didn't really know if like with those three, the Yojimbo and Django and all that, do they all have the coffin situation going on? No. So that's when, that's where this one's a little bit different. It, okay. it came a year or two after the good and the bad and the ugly. And the good and the bad and the ugly at the end has a coffin full of gold coins. That's what they're looking for. That is like the the MacGuffin, the plot driver that gets the three main characters of that film into that famous Mexican standoff at the end is the coffin full of gold coins. In this film, he has a coffin, but at least to start off, there's no gold in the coffin. What he has instead is a very powerful weapon. No, and yeah, the whole Gatling gun thing. And you don't even, they don't even bring it out until like 35 minutes into the movie. So this whole time you're like, what's in it? What's in the coffin? He yeah. says it's someone named Django, but is it? Like, <laughs> yeah, so that, that whole scene is just really crazy. You know, you sure are a brave man to tote that girl around. Or maybe you're not afraid of the Mexicans or of Jackson. I'm not afraid of anyone. Oh, Aren't you? You got guts, honey. Uh, my, uh, my girlfriends are afraid of what's in that box. But it doesn't really frighten me. After all, a coffin's a coffin. Is there someone inside? Yeah, and his name is Django. It's a great plot builder, and... There's something, again, and I'm, I'm not very big into Japanese anime. Like, I know the classics, but I'm not very familiar with all of the different series. But it seems like a plot driver or a plot device that you would find in one of those stories. A lone man with a coffin with a powerful weapon in it that he drags everywhere. There's something very Japanese about it, which, again being adapted from Yojimbo is kind of ironic, but also fascinating. Well, and there is also a similar character. Um, I don't know if they directly meant to, to do this. I've heard speculations about it, but if there's, there's a Japanese anime named Tri, called Trigun, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I watched it in college, but there's, uh, I think his name's uh, Wolfwood. Wolfwood. Nicholas D. Wolfwood, but he drags a giant cross with him and inside is his weapon. So he like runs, runs the walks the desert with that. So it's kind of like a similar type situation. Which again, it's fascinating that we have all these different cultures that find the same ideology 
ideology is fascinating enough to use them and adapt them into their own things. Like I said, that cyclical fashion of it, which again, we see Quentin Tarantino doing it too. Now he does it a little bit more tongue in cheek as a, like a direct homage. But if, if you know your films and you go back and you watch, like you said, animes like Trigun, films like Django, go back and watch Kurosawa films and then go back even further and watch films like The Glass Key or Read Red Harvest. And they even did it again back in the 90s where Bruce Willis made a film called Last Man Standing, which is the same story just set during Depression-era American Southwest. These stories resonate with people. They resonate having that lone hero, almost kind of like a Han Solo character, but without the side-supporting characters to help redeem him. Like He pretty much is his own destiny, and that's what I think really makes this type of character attractive to to audiences that really like these movies. Well, it's just like, you know, they got this this lone guy and he just strolls into town and just stirs stuff up, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's a, I mean, also, I mean, I guess it's a play on it too, but uh, the, the kids movie Rango. Yeah. You know, but the, like, I mean, that's pretty much a similar thing. Yeah. So the lizard isn't, the chameleon isn't super, uh, like promising that he could help, but you know, it all works out. <laughs> yeah. But it still kind of follows that same story structure. I didn't even put that together. That's an excellent point. Now, what makes this different than the fistful of dollars or yo Jimbo is it actually brings a little bit of political ideologies to it in the sense that it deals with the themes of racism in a very surprising way. You know, it takes place just right after the civil war where no one's really sure how they're supposed to behave. No one's really sure how laws are dictated. There is a really interesting line that John Malkovich says in the film Empire of the Sun, that the worst part of the war is not the beginning, it's not the middle, it's the end, where nobody knows what to do after the war is either won or lost. So remnants of that ideology of the war good guys, bad guys, they kind of just start forming their own little tribes until someone comes along and dictates how they're supposed to be. And that's how this film kind of starts because you've got these two different parties. You've got the Mexican bandits who are familiar with Django and somewhat friends with him. And then you've got this crew of ex-Confederate soldiers led by a guy named Major Jackson and they wear these red sashes and red hoods. So I feel like they're supposed to be like a proto Ku Klux Klan, but instead of going mm-hmm. after freed slaves, they're going after the native Mexicans in this particular area. As long as it, it helps them, because yes. when capitalism and greed come into play later, it doesn't matter as long as they get what they want, you know, or at least uh, Jackson. Which again is an interesting plot point, A, coming from an Italian filmmaker and not an American filmmaker, is telling a story that is based off of American culture and American history with the Civil War, but from a completely different angle and nationality. I think that's really interesting because you don't get films like that from like the 50s and 60s. Most of the time, it had to do with Native Americans, not, not Mexican natives living like in the Texas area. And I guess I think some of the native Mexican people that after the war ended, they're kind of stuck on this side Mm -hmm. and they can't get back over to Mexico. So it's like, there's, you know, everyone's like still kind of after them. Uh, and then, you know, it's like, 
if you go over there, there's a, there's a whole border situation and that comes into play a couple of times. And then, yeah, it's just weird how it's like certain Mexican people seem to be on Jackson's radar. But later when it gets to more of the military of Mexico, it's not that big. It's okay. Like at right. least he has some sort of deal with them. So yeah, the just the the racism in this is is pretty pretty hard. Some of it's kind of hard to watch. There's a couple of parts. It is, and it starts off with a very like, okay. interesting scene. Like it starts off with Major Jackson and his men crucifying a Mexican American prostitute who had had apparently been adored and serviced by that side. And it's just a really interesting way to open that film because a it makes you extremely uncomfortable of what you're seeing because there are a lot of taboos in this scene for the time. Like you, you wouldn't have shown a burning cross. <laughs> you would not have shown a burning cross in an American film in the sixties. They were already having enough issues with racial tensions outside of films, outside of novels. Like this is right in the middle of the, the social change and the social climate of the 1960s. So to see that, I'm sure, was very disturbing and very maybe enraging to certain audiences. But again, it's that kind of thing that makes this film the cult film that it is. It pushed buttons, it broke boundaries, and it was able to make people a little bit more aware and comfortable with this new style of storytelling and filmmaking that was coming. It's a great opening scene, if you don't mind me getting into it. Please uh, do. Okay. Yeah, because it's just like, Django's on the way to do whatever he needs to do. He's trying to get, he feels bad because stuff happened with someone that he knew and died and he wants restitution and all that stuff. So he's on his way doing stuff and then he just sees these, it was it was Mexican first, Mexican soldiers first, mm-hmm. or who had, Maria. So you got Maria, she's like half Mexican, half Italian, yes. I guess. They have this really great scene where it's just this open, like, gulch-looking thing, mm-hmm. and there's this really rickety bridge, and she's she's tied up, like, crucifixion-style against this thing, mm-hmm. and they're... It's like, you can see Django's mind thinking, like, oh, well, I guess I gotta stop and do something with this one. Like he's, yeah. he's, like, on a mission, and then he's standing up on the hill, and he does... The only thing I, I didn't care for is he seems to wait an awfully long time to help her, because they start whipping her across the back, and they get like ten whips in. Yeah, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, I guess I'll do something." <laughs> and so <laughs> he is able to shoot all of them at the same time. Well, because he's a badass, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> he shoots all of them at the same time. They all go down, and then it's like these other people. Uh, it's like Jackson's men, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yes, crest, crest over the hill. And at first, you're like, "Are they going to help?" No, probably not. No. <laughs> and then, yeah, they just like get Marie off the thing, off the, off being tied up. And then the, the, the other thing that I thought was funny with this is like later, cause then, you know, Django fights them too and, and kills them and all that. Um, and so he takes Maria to where he was. Luckily she was heading in the same direction. I mean, she was trying to get away, I guess, but she was from the same direction. So that's yes. convenient. So he goes back, and then it's like Maria's fine after that. Well, here's my interpretation of that. I feel like we are dealing with two characters, and uh, in in one of the commentaries, director Alex Cox, who did Repo Man and uh, Walker, he 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 put it this way, and I really agree with him. You are dealing with two characters who they really don't go into their backstories, but you can only assume that their backstories are so tragic that they've both dealt with massive amounts of post-traumatic stress, which makes them both a little bit 
sociopathic, so to speak. Like they've lost all empathy for other people because they've just been screwed over so much throughout their lives during these conflicts. And that's what makes them kind of perfect for each other, which also makes the tragedy at the end that more meaningful. But like you said, like she kind of just brushes off the whipping and the pain because it's probably not the first time she's dealt with that. Like they really push the fact that she has been literally tossed around from group of bandits to mercenaries to army men. Like she has experienced just a lifetime of just desensitivity of abuse and, and, and sexual abuse while he, who knows what he's gone through other than being, you know, a soldier having to make decisions that he talks about that he didn't want to make. So it makes sense that he took a minute to decide what he was going to do because that, that barrier that he's built emotionally takes a minute to, to pierce and that's the way that I yeah. perceived it. I, I guess I, yeah, I can I can understand some of that. Uh, it's also like he yeah he doesn't really trust anyone. So why get involved? Because usually if it, from what he has learned in the past, if he gets involved, they usually end up dead. Yeah. Or something ends up happening. So then anything bad that happens to him, he's like, well, it's like my penance. You know, I kind of deserve it. That's one reason probably that he's dragging this coffin instead of making it into a backpack. Exactly. And carrying it. And just to make it a little bit harder for him. And so then with like Maria's case, she wants better for herself. I, I don't think they really should end up together because literally it was like two days. And But I get that they can connect on that level of being these like tortured kind of people who've just like, just she wants something a little different, but it's something that he probably can't give her. But they kind of have a bit of an understanding. And she's also grateful because he got her out of that situation even though she had to go back to the brothel, but yes. Um, but she's I kind mean, of yeah. also a little bit in shock, I think, because even the physicality of just getting Whipped. beat like that, yeah. you know, the, the fact that she was like even standing upright is great, but like, uh, yeah. So, well, no, and that's a very excellent point where they are both very intelligent people. They are definitely smarter than the enemy and then the people that they're dealing with in the village. But just because you're intelligent and you have that foresight doesn't mean that luck won't play against you as it does many times in this film. Their plans that they make together or on their own are actually pretty good, but sometimes you just, the cards don't fall that way for you. Sometimes that you will actually have to face another consequence that you weren't planning on. And they both face it really diligently. And we can get to that in the end. But like you said, the next part of the story takes them to the village, to the town where she miserable is. Miserable town. Miserable town. So wet and muddy. I just, ugh, I could, everything is just, I feel bad. Like, I'll get into it in a bit, but man, Nathaniel, that brothel owner, bar owner, good goodness, I feel for him in this movie, but just so much mud. Well, and that's the thing about this film and the way that these characters are portrayed is they are literally living like in a hell. But this hell is all they have and it's all they know. So it's worth trying to protect whatever it is they've built. It's that real sense of desperation on every single face in that brothel, especially on Nathaniel. I mean, if this was that movie uh, Inside Out from Pixar and he was one of the characters, he would be desperation. That's him. That's his face. It's just <laughs> desperation. Well, and it's just like there's no one coming into the town anymore. So the business is only from 
the soldiers right. really and so these women are just sitting around uh, you know and the, the the sex workers or whatever are sitting around and some look nice and like i, I love the bar the bar that whole scene the whole setup mm-hmm. for that i really enjoy that whole um scenery and so that's some of my favorite parts is in the bar and they're all just bored they're all just hanging around you know and then they have to pay jackson uh, in order to have protection. And it's like, yeah, protection from them from because them, if they don't pay them. Right. It's, it's not even like safety. It's just to stay alive. So, so it's such yeah, a it's dead just, end for them. And, you know, Django's way to kind of like help them out of that, but also get what he wants, which we get to later, is he says that he can protect the town on his own. And how he does this is when Jackson and his men ride into town Inside Django's coffin is his magnificent, never-ending ammunition supply and his Gatlin gun, <laughs> which he eliminates everybody that attacks a town. Jackson does get away, but he gets everyone with pretty much one shot. He just boom, 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 boom. They are all done. And he, he leaves it for Nathaniel to bury. By himself. This poor man. I was like... There's like 47 people out there and he's like, you got this. And Nathaniel's like an older guy, like yeah. kind of little, like not, and the ground's not even even because it's so muddy and he's out there just like slip sliding and trying to get all of them buried. And I'm like, ugh, and it just gets worse. I'm like, Jenko, do you even like Nathaniel at all? Cause I mean, I guess he really doesn't care. He's just there to get what he, get what he wants. But uh, he's, he's a, he's a good guy, but I don't know if I'd say he's a nice guy. Like he's just got his own. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about influence, too, like there is a scene right before that happens where you see Jackson doing target practice with just some of the Mexican villagers as they're just let free to run into the oh, desert. So crazy. And he sharpshoots them with his rifle. We saw a very similar scene at the start of the John Rambo movie from like 2006, where a bunch of the Cambodian people are let to run away and... They shoot them or they hit landmines. And I remember when seeing that film, like, oh, Stallone saw Django. And this is that scene all over again. <laughs> well, it's just that guy. It's like the, the one guy they'd let get really far away. Like the yeah. one guy that he thinks he can almost make it. He, he starts to crest that ridge and then they just take him out. And it's like, I, I think if I were that one of those poor people, I would just be like, just just shoot me. Just do it. Because it's not like I'm, I'm not going to run for your amusement. So if you want to just do it. Yeah, but yeah, it's just terrible. So then we're introduced to the next group of, uh, what's the best way to put them? Unsavory characters, and that's the Mexican bandits. And Django is familiar with the main guy who they had obviously dealt with each other earlier on. And together, Django shows them his Gatling gun. And he says that he can get them like a dozen of them if they steal the gold from a gold depository in one of these forts. And if so they, they just front them the money. He could do this. We just spare him some cash. Right. You know, he'll get this plan out. I mean, join his, his, uh, his pyramid scheme and we'll get, the, you or, know, we get out. We can all win in the end. I mean, in plot holes aside, I was also thinking with the amount of planning and, the dedication to your men to steal this gold, wouldn't it be easier just to go steal the guns instead? 
but we'll let yeah. that slide. Now this is yeah, where and then, he, most of the bandits. Oh, sorry, most of the bandits just uh, just they just want to party. And that shows like the difference between the two like rival groups that you see is that there is some kind of just disturbing motivation for Jackson and his men, while the bandits, like you said, they aren't extremely trustworthy even among themselves because they fight for something different. They're not fighting for a revolution. They're not fighting for some kind of political ideology or racist ideology. They just want money and tequila and a good time. You see that there is that that kind of deconstruction of their group because they really aren't all for one, one for all. And so they go and they get into this fort under the ruse of Nathaniel's carts full of women. And as they get the cart into the fort, they pull down the curtain and they've got the Gatling gun. They take people out. The bandits and Django rush in. They shoot everybody and they steal the gold. I do like video games and I've played both Red Dead Redemption games. I'm not sure if you have. No, I haven't. I know of them. Oh my goodness. That whole scene is played out in both games where you are infiltrating a fort in a wagon under a ruse and even the structures of the fort match identically with the structures in the game. And that's another influence that I think is amazing Mm -hmm. is that the people that made that game like, okay, we love this movie Django. We're going to let people live out the Django storyline. Fantastic. I just had to put that out there for a second. Yeah. And that was a pretty crazy scene because you're like, what's going on? Because it's like every week or month or something, uh, Nathaniel brings his women to be with the men there. And at first I, was, I felt really bad for them because literally like 120 men come running to the front. Right. And there's like five, five women sex workers. I'm like, oh, those poor things. And so, and they're like, yeah, like they're all going to get a turn. So the, the whole, like the whole like Trojan horse type thing that they do when they go, that was really fun. And there's a lot of great, um, like action shots in this scene. Yeah. And then there's also one that I noticed where it's like the guy got shot in the eye and they have him like grab it and it's all bleeding. Yes. And it's like, everything's like a split second, but it's like, it pulls you in where you're just like, Oh man, everything's going crazy. And it, they're successful. They get, but then you see that Jackson's there too. So yes. he's talking to, the Mexican soldiers, but then he's also shooting Mexican people. But because money's involved, like, I, you know, it's like he picks and chooses who he makes deals with. And just speaking of the violence and the gore in that particular scene, because that's a very gory scene for 1966. There are a lot of people that say that Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch from 1969 was a film that really kind of broke the barrier of violence and blood in cinema. And it was a Western with squibs, with fake blood. This movie is three years before that. And I think that this is the film that really kind of breaks that barrier because there is a lot of blood. There's even a more gruesome scene, in my opinion, later on towards the end of the film. But again, kind of speaking to the influences of these so-called spaghetti Western films in American films that we would later see in the 70s when they weren't afraid to go after the gore and go after the fake blood and the squibs. I would say they owe a lot to this film, especially in that scene. Yeah, it's a very gruesome scene. Yeah, so they end up, they get them, they get their gold, and it's literally just pieces of gold, like it's like tiny. Yeah, like, like gold just a dust mound of nuggets, gold. <laughs> little nuggets. <laughs> like okay, like I guess that I mean that works then, but yeah, it's a lot. Gold is gold, right? And, and that's where we kind of like get to the idea again, where there is no honor among thieves because Django just wants his share of the gold 
and just wants to get out. But the guy in charge of the, the Mexican bandits is like, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll want you to join our army. We'll pay you double if you help us do this job and this job. But okay, man, we're going to put all the gold into this one room, seal it off and guard it so no one can steal your gold. Obviously, Django knows that this guy is not going to hold up to his end of the bargain. So Django's decision then is to not only take his share of the gold, he's going to take all the gold. <laughs> yeah, that that lines it up too. Because like they they make it over the the invisible border, you know, so the so the mm-hmm. other Mexican soldiers can't go after them. So. Yeah, they put the gold like away for safekeeping, quote unquote, and then they're ready to party. They're all like, yeah, let's, you know, get these uh, sex workers down here. And they they rough them up a little, which isn't really nice. Um, but there's like this whole party scene where they're all like starting to get the the booze flowing. And then um, also there's an earlier scene again with the, I went just how, how much Nathaniel gets stomped on in this. Yeah. He, uh, Jenko is trying to show off his gun to them right before they do all this. And he ends up shooting up the whole bar, all like the, the bottles, whole, all the bottles along the side. Just wrecks Nathaniel's, like, Nathaniel's business. <laughs> Nathaniel just got things cleaned up. He is tired. He buried 47 people or whatever. And, and he rode a wagon. All of y'all. <laughs> Yeah, and he's yeah he was terrified. He hid the whole time during the shootout because uh, he was terrified. And he's he's not doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. He keeps these women, you know, they seem not, yeah. you know, like he's nice to them, you know. And then Jingle just comes in here and blows all his alcohol away. He probably thought he was going to make a little money with having these Mexican yeah. bandits here for the night. And then they just like walk away, like okay, goodbye, Nathaniel. Go clean up your mess now. And, and have more booze like, ready for you know, us. <laughs> And then uh, one more, I had a question, like there's a scene, so like between like uh, him and Maria, the woman he saves or whatever, Yes. where on like that first night or whatever, and he's coming up to say goodnight or whatever, and it's implied that they are going to sleep together, mm-hmm. but I, I guess they did. Do you think they did? I mean, he kissed her on the shoulder, but like. It's it, other than that, and her maybe being a little jealous the next day or whatever from, or the day or two later. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it goes back to that whole you you recognize in other people the struggles that you've recognized in yourself. Like they're almost like comrades in arms. Like they they both share trauma, and I think that to them, since they've lost what you would consider traditional attraction to let's say a preferred mate or sexual partner to them that is just so numb and dulled from everything that they went through their version of chemistry and attraction is this trauma that they've obviously both shared so Mm -hmm. they don't really go deep into it like you said like you have to kind of read between the lines and that's the way I read it is that let's say that the only way that Django can actually physically and sexually perform is with someone who has the exact same kind of history and trauma that he has, you know, because he is not going to be attracted to young, innocent, playful, happy, none of the norms that most of us find attractive. You would say he, he has to really be in a connection with someone who knows what he's been through and vice versa. That's the way I saw it. Yeah, I could see that because there's that when he first gets into the bar in the beginning, there's that one 
prostitute that kind of takes care of Maria. Yeah. And she's a little more flighty and trying to make jokes and he completely just ignores her pretty much. And she even so says, later, yeah, she even says to Maria, it's like, oh, well, he's got his eye on you, not me. You know, yeah. she even makes a comment about it. <laughs> so then later when he comes up to the bedroom and stuff, yeah, he was going to leave, but then he ends up staying and, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they just laid next to each other. But yeah, it was more like a, like a, yeah, we went through this thing together. Mm-hmm. So we have like this kind of like connection. Um, so yeah, though, though, again, I can't help but think of the physicality of it. And I'm just like, <laughs> Her poor back. back is so torn and, up. And the fact that he he had like a layer of dirt on his entire body, didn't take a bath. And uh, I mean, some of that was like, um, there's uh, apparently he was only like 25 in this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, so they made him look older. Yeah. Because he looks like he's 40 or something like that. So it's just like all this like makeup and dirt and things. <laughs> and then he just walks out the next day and never changed clothes. And I'm like, okay, well. Well, like you said, with watching, yeah, like you said, with watching Deadwood, it kind of gives you an expectation of what hygiene was for both sexes back in the 1800s. It is not a glamorous life. No, it's not. It's not not glamorous. (laughs) Now, we're not going to give away the ending of this film, but like I said, there is that third act of how it gets there because we had already talked about Maria and Django sharing some kind of like intelligence greater than that of jackson's men and that of the bandits Django puts together an amazing little setup like i said he's intelligent but sometimes luck plays against you and time plays against you where he knows that he's not gonna get his gold so he steals the gold in his coffin and sets up his gatling gun to essentially take out anybody that could stop him from stealing the gold out of the village I think he would have made it on his own had Maria not been waiting there with a shotgun to his head saying, I'm coming with you. We're in this together. You'll have to bring me along too, Django. Okay. Maria, come along. Got to hurry, Django. We better get going. Watch out! They lost some valuable time making that connection, which I think is part of the hero's demise in the sense where, like, if a hero makes a choice that is going to affect his outcome, that was his choice. He could have killed her. He could have just left. He could have done a multitude of things, but instead he decides to take her with him to escape the village with this gold. Well, it's like, would she have even shot him? Yeah. Who you knows? Know, like, I mean, it would even, you know, um, but yeah, that whole, the, the setup of the third act and beyond is all my favorite. Like, so this whole, like once it gets set to the Mexican bandits are like partying it up and there's this really great scene of him, setting up his plan yeah so it's like at first he he picks another prostitute to go with him and so maria is jealous and so what he does is you think they're going to do something because he tells this woman to take her clothes off which is out of character for him 
Yeah. So she's taking the clothes off. She's like, okay. She's like, starts taking them off. And what he's doing is setting up a distraction. So there's some guys outside that will notice him walking across this walkway outside. Mm -hmm. So what he does is he sets it up. So then as she's taking her clothes off, these guys who are like really drunk outside are like, oh, hey, look at that. Yeah, let's look at that. So they all look at that. And then there's this really great scene, just slow scene of him dragging this coffin all the way across this walkway into the next building or wherever they're keeping the gold. And it's just a really fun scene, the way that they shoot it. And it's like all you hear all the party noises and everyone's just doing their own thing. And he's just slowly scooting. Everyone thinks he's with this woman. And then he gets, like you said, down to the area and sets up the Gatling gun and uses dynamite that I guess he knew the the range of Mm because he really didn't hide that. He just hid behind the gun. He was like like five feet away from the explosion. He was like, it's fine. It's not that powerful. (laughs) And so then he... uh, blows that up and yeah and so then he gets caught by maria and yeah if he he could have just killed her but then it's that's not really the way he is and they also like you said had that bond yeah so i think he was just like okay we're wasting time let's go we gotta go then so just come on so yeah they take off and that time costs them because there there is again decisions to be made and it really kind of shows who Django is in the sense of like what is more important to him the gold or this woman. And there's one thing I forgot to mention at the very beginning that comes back into play in, in the end is this movie's plot is heavily dependent on quicksand. Oh, that quicksand. I was going to say, I had to look up if it was even like real or not. Cause I remember being told that, you know, you see it kids movies and you think it's going to be like, you think it's a big thing. Yeah. Or and Bugs really, Bunny cartoons. It, yeah. And I think it can be, harmful but it's not like it's gonna suck you down into the depths it's just really hard to get out of yeah like how far does it even go like yeah if that little gulch they were in, i don't think was even that deep so no. i mean if anything it's just heavy and i don't know what it was made of because it didn't look like quicksand i've seen it looked like it looked wood like chips of, and water yeah like asphalt <laughs> yeah asphalt and water or something like this but whatever crazy. i bought it i bought it for the plot <laughs> i bought it for the pot driving uh intention of it and so because of the men catching up and they shoot at them and the coffin slides down the ravine and into the quicksand and he jumps in the quicksand to get the coffin, but he can't get the coffin. So Maria goes back onto the bridge, grabs him by the hand to save him, and by doing so, risks her own life. Very dramatic. Because <laughs> like, the bridge is so old and rickety. Yes. And then she's like just leaning and then when she gets shot, she just like falls over onto the bridge and then they're all like where's the gold and he's like um about that <laughs> just like, like looking into the quicksand y'all better start swimming because it's in the bottom of that quicksand <laughs> yeah. like i can't get it so now there is something about this film that i really like that i've seen done in many films since then and that is the almost dire straits and sheer all loss of hope for your hero Because like I said, we've grown to like Django, even though he's technically not a likable character. But there is something about when a character at some point, especially this close to the end of the third act, gets either horribly disfigured or horribly incapacitated. And they do that to him. I'd say it's very similar to like those scenes where the hero gets tortured and has his toes smashed with a hammer or his fingernails pried off. Like you feel the pain of this person you've spent the last 90 minutes with that you thought was going to win the day. And now 
they are being just brutalized. And that's what happens to Django. What do they do to him? They break his hands with like a, was it a hammer? It was the butt of a rifle. Yeah, just over and over until his hands basically look like bloody, just jelly. Yeah, it's like oatmeal. Kind of thing. Yeah, and he's just laying there. And that's one of the things that he says. He's like, we don't kill thieves. What do we do? They smash their hands in. And, this and I is- think that main guy for the, I'll say, I think the main guy for the Mexican, was it Hugo? Yes, Hugo. I think he was a bit disappointed because I think he was kind of having this like fatherly thing towards Django. Like, yeah. hey, we got this deal going on and, you know, and then to get uh, underhanded. And, and I guess when they were getting ready to head out, it was almost dawn because now it's daytime. So because I don't think they made it that far. Um, right. But yeah, so his hands are just gone. And that's unfortunate because he sh- shoots guns. So which I'm not going to give this. I give the ending away. But okay, okay. in a true spaghetti Western hero fashion there is a very awesome technique slash contraption put together that is going to let the hero save the day and not even save the day like at the end of the day what did Django really achieve other than surviving he doesn't get the gold he doesn't get the woman he just lives to fight another day which leads us to the legacy of Django do you think Maria died because he ends up carrying, he's carrying her in his like beaten up hands, right? He takes her back to yeah. Nathaniel as he's trying to leave because Nathaniel doesn't want to be there no, he's not. anymore. So Nathaniel's like, I can't, my my bar is done. So he's got like a violin and a bag and he's like, I got to go. And he's just, you know, reminiscing. And then Django just comes in like, oh, here's Maria. She's dying and or dead and throws her down and then uh, leaves. And then that's how, and then the guys come and that Nathaniel dies. Yeah. He gets killed. And I yeah. was like, oh my gosh, this poor guy. After he, all like, that I you mean, did to him in this movie, like, if anyone should have lived, it should have been that guy. <laughs> yeah. And so and then it's like, yeah, then it goes back to that scene you were talking about at the very end. And yeah, then it's, it's the end. And what, what did he really come across? Now there is, like you said, with the legacy of it, there is a sequel, like a true sequel. 20 years Django, later, um, almost. And it's Django Strikes Again, I think is what it's called. I haven't seen it, but Neither I'm tempted to buy it. Cause, yeah, because I think I'm going to buy it because I found it in a double feature on like Amazon so or somewhere. So I think I'm going to buy it and just check it out. But I did notice because I watched the trailer that his hands are fine. <laughs> so at least we know at least we know his hands healed. It might have taken 20 years, but his hands yeah. <laughs> survived. So now like let's go into the false leg- legacy of Django. Like I talked mm-hmm. about at the beginning of the episode, because of just how the film distribution and copyright laws exist in, in Italy, there were over 30 unofficial Django sequels and spinoffs. And a lot of them featured a lot of prominent spaghetti Western actors, most specifically Thomas Millian, who would do a lot of films with Lucio Fulci. He would do a lot of films with Steven Soderbergh later in like the 90s and 2000s. But yeah, there was like, 30 different Django films. None of them had to do anything with the original story, but they would pick and choose what they wanted. And if you were an American audience member, you would go and say, oh, there's a Django sequel. Oh, there's another Django sequel. But they had different stories. They had different production values. And that was like the weird thing is like Django is such a beautiful film and it's shot great and it's got a great score. And then you're watching like all of these different sub genre versions of Django that are, maybe shot in 16 millimeter or even eight millimeter in certain times. And you're like, well, what's going on? 
So I think it took probably 30 years for people and historians to really understand that like, no, these were just ripoffs. These were not official Django movies. It's kind of like when you watch a Friday the 13th movie and then watch like the endless ripoffs of summer camp slashers afterwards. Some <laughs> of them are great, but at the same time, you know what they're doing. They're not genuine. They are not the official thing. Although there is this group of people, there is a cult following of these other Django movies that kind of kept the genre alive. Well, and some of them were even just like, oh, is Franco Nero in it? And it's a Western put a Django on it. Right. Like it's not even exactly <laughs> Django. I mean, I know that song from the original was really great. It's a real catchy song. The yeah. music in Django 66 is, is great. So maybe they were just like, cause a lot of the words in it was like Django, Django. Just and, over and Tarantino and over. So even finished. Punish. Yeah. Tarantino even closes off his version of Django, Django Unchained with the Django mm-hmm. song, which is great. It's fantastic. Yeah. Great song. Yeah, great song. I love that song. Django, have you always been to spaghetti westerns and specifically the director Sergio Carbucci you know he is known for being like I said that second tier spaghetti western director behind Leone and then he kind of switched genres like in the 70s and 80s where he started doing like these buddy comedies whether they were crime comedies or western comedies they usually featured Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer their American names they were both Italian actors but that was like the way that's the direction that he went with with his career after the Spaghetti Westerns started to die. Now, I honestly feel that the Spaghetti Westerns made a huge comeback even before Django Unchained because we start seeing references of it in like Back to the Future 2 and 3. They really mm-hmm. kind of take the whole fistful of dollars plot and throw them into these films. Like you start seeing a lot of these Spaghetti Westerns end up in modern pop culture. In my opinion... You're even seeing it now in Star Wars. For example, The Mandalorian, I I feel, is like kind of like a spaghetti Western version of Star Wars, even though it's Lone Wolf and Cub, which was a Japanese manga. They kind of just work well together. And I feel Star Wars has been taking a lot of influence from these spaghetti Westerns and putting them in these series. And that's why they feel comforting to us, because we already know this formula. We already know this genre. Now we're just watching it through the lens of Star Wars. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's the influence of these movies. It just keeps on going. It probably will continue to keep on going, especially as some of these, uh, I mean, even Django, just the original now is still, it's considered, you know, why we're here. It's a cult classic. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So it's it's inspiring a lot of um, filmmakers and video games. and. So yeah, you definitely recommend this as a cult-worthy classic to our listeners, right? I would, yes. Awesome, awesome. Yes, this is a super fun. And are we doing double features? Yeah, we should. If you have one picked out, I haven't done one for a minute, I'd... but I think we should. This is a good one. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, because I was thinking about that too. And I thought about 
double featuring it with Trigun, the Japanese anime, or yeah. at least a couple episodes that Wolf Woods in. But then I was like, eh, it's a, there's like 26 episodes. So uh, instead, I thought, you know, I'd go more because Tarantino did Django Unchained, which most people would think that'd be the obvious, maybe double feature. But I'm going to go with a different Tarantino movie that I, I enjoyed more, um, which would be uh, 2015's The Hateful Eight. Great movie. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I like to think that, that one is a little bit more closer to Assault on Precinct 13 or The Thing. But mm-hmm. I like your thinking because I don't want to watch two films that have the same story structure right next to each other. The same energy I like, but let's have the stories be different. So yeah, Django and Hateful Eight, 100%. I think that's a great, great idea. Now, do you have a double feature? I do. I would pair this, and again... I'm just contradicting everything I just said, but for the sake of (laughs) education, I would say that this would pair well with The Glass Key from 1942, starring, uh, it was directed by Stuart Heisler, and it starred Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. Now, here's the interesting thing about this film. This film has multiple influences. Again, I feel that this one kind of helped influence this, as you've got this guy who's kind of a loner and is kind of playing both sides of the villainous groups. You know, he's playing the bandits and he's playing the, let's say, political figures. Mm -hmm. It also was an inspiration for the film Miller's Crossing by the Coen brothers. So again, when you kind of go back and you do your homework and if you think about the Coen brothers film, Miller's Crossing, Gabriel Byrne's character, Tom, is essentially Django, but in... Irish Midwest crime families. It's kind of the same deal. So I would say for like just a little bit of history and a little bit of lessons in the influences of these films, I would say watch The Glass Key and then watch Django and just do your own homework and pick the plot points and character motivations between the two and come to your own conclusion. Okay, this was a lot of fun. Um, we'll do we'll, again. <laughs> yeah, we'll, thank you. We'll do it again, again sometime. Me on. Yeah. yeah, you're always in the classic. I got to get get you on the on the regular show too, so we can talk about like slasher films or some of the horror yeah. films that you're covering on your. I like creature show. features. Oh so god, like. creature! Oh, I got creature features for sure. I I want to do an episode about bad monkeys, about monkey films. So okay, maybe we can or talk about shines. That. monkey shines, Link, Shockma, yeah. with some of those movies. So. Yeah, let's do a little history let's do a little uh revision on those get for re-familiar with some of those stories and let's do some bad monkey movies in the future how does that sound sounds good yeah all right everyone this was melissa from the good evening kitties podcast my name is antonio the cult worthy classic and you can find me on instagram facebook letterboxd and twitter and if you would like to be a guest on the show you can reach out to me on twitter or on the cultworthy.com Melissa, once again, this is the third time you've been on the show, so you have now been on the show the most amount of times of all the guests, and (laughs) this will not be the last. I'm so glad we were able to talk about this just influential and cult-worthy spaghetti western, and we'll see you next week.